A criminal investigation's success is contingent upon gathering evidence, hard evidence that explains all the avenues and pieces that make up the crime. But what happens when the persons conducting the investigation are the ones responsible for the crime, or at the very least, culpable of the cover-up? This may be exactly what happened in the JFK assassination. You're listening to Conspiracy Season 1, JFK. Episode 9, FBI, Federally Botched Investigation. Over the course of the season, we've gone over the events leading up to the day of the assassination. We've also been going over the important aspects of what happened after the assassination. It can be difficult sifting through all the information and deciding what is important, and if anything, the JFK assassination is so flooded with information, it has been overwhelming trying to keep all the facts straight. I think it's safe to say that any researcher looking into this topic will have moments of utter confusion bringing them to the brink of insanity. Because that's what the JFK assassination is. Complete confusion and utter insanity. And that's exactly how the Dallas authorities and the FBI treated this case. After JFK was assassinated, Dallas police began gathering evidence and Dallas police chief Jesse Curry immediately began receiving phone calls from Washington. Someone with authority wanted all the evidence sent up to Washington without delay. Dallas police resisted, but promises were made to return all the evidence, and so Dallas relented. Curry told the Warren Commission, The FBI actually had no jurisdiction over the murder of Kennedy. The Secret Service actually had no jurisdiction over it. But in an effort to cooperate with these agencies, we went all out to do whatever they wanted us to do. We kept getting calls from the FBI. They wanted this evidence up in Washington, and there was some discussion. Captain Fritz told me, he says, well, I need the evidence here. I need to get some people to try to identify the gun, to try to identify this pistol and these things. And if it's in Washington, how can I do it? But we finally, about midnight of Friday night, we agreed to let the FBI have all the evidence. There's a part of me that understands and agrees for the need to have it all sent to Washington. Federal investigators would have unlimited resources and would be, I hope, relentless in hunting down the perpetrators and their pursuit for truth. But no surprise, I would be wrong. Not only was the investigation botched from the start, the evidence was mishandled. Most of the evidence was never returned or would eventually go missing. With the FBI officially on the case, and now in charge of the evidence, what could have happened during the time they were in control? And why did they fail to have an effective chain of custody? To be blunt, after reviewing as much information as I could, and going over hundreds of reports, eyewitness accounts, and researched books, I can say with certainty that fabrications, substitutions, eliminations, and alterations of the evidence did occur. You see, there's never been a lack of evidence in this tragedy. There's a trove. Several hundred witnesses, hours of film, and thousands of pictures from Dealey Plaza that exist. And in the hours following the assassination, a good amount of physical evidence was gathered. 
This evidence would include a rifle, empty shell cases, and a sniper's nest, bullet fragments, and even a convincing palm print on the suspected murder weapon. The rapid accumulation of evidence prompted Dallas County District Attorney Henry Wade to proclaim to the media he had an open and shut case against Lee Harvey Oswald. At a cursory glance, this is true, but when examining the evidence, this open and shut case doesn't fall within reality. The Warren Commission attempted to piece together the evidence, but got off to a bumbling start when they couldn't get a consensus on where the shots were even fired from. This would send the commission in the direction of only proving Oswald was the killer and acted alone, instead of following the evidence to wherever it led them. To illuminate my point, think about this. The commission questioned 126 of the 266 known witnesses, either by testimony or affidavit. In the commission's attempt to find the source of the shots, 32 indicated the Texas School Book Depository, 51 placed the shots in the vicinity of the grassy knoll, several believed shots were fired from another location, and 38 witnesses gave no opinion because most were not asked. The commission pretty much relied on competing witness testimony instead of the actual best evidence available, the medical reports. But as we know, JFK received an incompetent autopsy. The body is the best piece of physical evidence anyone could have hoped for during that time, and it was mishandled. The autopsy should have established how many bullets struck Kennedy and from which direction. However, as discussed in a previous episode, the medical evidence in this case continues to be a source of controversy. It's filled with inconsistencies, errors, missing items, and phony photographs and x-rays. The only information from the autopsy anyone can be certain about is that Kennedy was shot at least twice. If we can't rely on the medical reports, then we have to look at other pieces of evidence, such as the ballistic reports and other physical items to construct and prove the real events in this assassination. Unfortunately, as we have found out all season, we find ourselves disappointed. This area, too, is filled with doubts, questions, deceit, and ambiguity. Of the nine fingerprints and four palm prints found on book boxes from the sixth floor, only one fingerprint and palm print could be traced to Oswald. Only one. You would expect at least to find one fingerprint on the boxes, since Oswald's job was to pack these boxes with books. But all of the remaining prints belonged to Dallas policemen, R.L. Studebaker, FBI clerk Forrest Lucy, and then the rest have remained unidentified. Think about that for a second. There are fingerprints they could not match to any of the federal or local authorities conducting the investigation, and they couldn't match them to any other depository employee. The best we can say about the forensic evidence is that it was a disaster. Dallas Police Lieutenant J.C. Day of the Crime Scene Search Unit admitted to the Warren Commission that the sniper's nest boxes had been moved around. In the commission testimony, the following exchange took place between Day and Commission Attorney David Beelan. Beelan, were those boxes in the window the way you saw them, or had they been replaced in the window to reconstruct it? Day, they had simply been moved in the processing for prints. They weren't put back in any particular order. So, the sniper's nest photograph does not represent, so far as the boxes are concerned, 
The crime scene when you first came to the sixth floor. Is that correct? That is correct. Essentially, the sniper's nest evidence is useless, and this type of error from these professionals carries over to the three cartridge cases that were reportedly found on the sixth floor. The three cases were found lying near the sixth floor window, and Day said he took two photographs. Two cases can be seen lying near each other on the floor, beneath the windowsill, while the third is some distance away. You would assume that this was the position of the shells when they were found. Nope. And there's evidence to support the idea that the photos were staged. In 1985, WFAA-TV cameraman Tom Leah stated in an interview that he managed to get inside the Texas School Book Depository before it was sealed by police. As he entered the building, Aaliyah heard someone shout, Don't let anyone in or out. Once Aaliyah reached the sixth floor, he started filming Dallas police searching for evidence. So he was able to get in before the crime scene was secured. He said the federal authorities there were bent on getting me out of the place and did not want him taking any film, but his friendly local police contacts allowed him to stay. Elias said he noticed shells lying on the floor, but he couldn't film them because of book boxes in the way. Noting that Elias couldn't get a good shot, Captain Fritz picked up the shells and held them in his hand for the camera, then threw the shells down on the floor. I have no words for this type of behavior. This all occurred before the crime scene unit arrived. Fritz knows better. All lawmen know better. You can't go about messing with the crime scene before crime scene techs can process the actual crime scene. According to Aaliyah, the film showcasing the shells was apparently thrown out, with other unused news film on the orders of his news director. Two lawmen on the sixth floor at the time, Deputy Sheriff Roger Craig and Luke Mooney, have told researchers they saw the three shells lying impossibly side by side, inches apart under the window, all pointing in the same direction. If we take this to be true, knowing this position would be impossible if the shells had been normally ejected from a rifle to the right rear, then once again, another piece of evidence becomes suspect. The Warren Commission would publish a copy of the Dallas Police Evidence Log, and it showed three shells were taken from the depository. But years later, a copy of the evidence log would be found in the Texas Department of Public Safety Files, and amazingly, this log shows only two shell cases were found. Are you beginning to see how anyone researching this assassination can begin to lose their mind? It's almost impossible to find some fact about this case that doesn't have some supporting evidence later that contradicts it. So how does the evidence log discrepancy get situated? Well, reportedly Fritz held on to one of the shells for several days before forwarding it to the FBI. Why? Who the hell knows? If this happened in any other murder case, the case could reasonably be thrown out for evidence tampering and for not having a proper chain of custody. Chain of custody for evidence is so critical. This breach in custody causes suspicion for the legitimacy of the third shell. And compounding on this suspicion is the fact that the FBI crime lab determined that two of the shells show a small dent 
This anomaly was found only on shell cases loaded in the Oswald rifle. The third casing showed no such evidence. In fact, the third shell, designated Commission Exhibit 543, had an indention only on its lip that would have prevented the fitting of a slug. So what does this mean? It means that in that condition, it could not have fired a bullet on that day. Another problem with Exhibit 543 surfaces because it contained marks made from a magazine follower. The follower is the part of the magazine clip that ensures the alignment of the rounds, so the weapon can either chamber or move up the rounds to chamber. The follower only marks the last round in a magazine clip. Why is this a problem for Exhibit 543? The rifle collected on the sixth floor that day contained a magazine clip with a live round, making it impossible for 543 to have been marked by the follower that day. There's even more bizarre events surrounding the shell casings, but I will go into that in a future episode. But you get the idea. Too many questions arise to accept the shell cases as legitimate evidence. And even the rifle found that day, and reportedly belonging to Oswald, it's also surrounded by controversy and inconsistencies. The rifle was found behind boxes on the sixth floor of the depository, and it was initially described as a 7.65mm bolt-action German Mauser. Deputy Sheriff E.L. Boone was the one to find the rifle and exclaim its make and model. Supporting Boone's report was Deputy Constable Seymour Weitzman. Both lawmen reportedly had more than an average knowledge of weapons. As late as the day after the assassination, Weitzman wrote in a report, I was working with Deputy Boone of the Sheriff's Department and helping in the search. We were in the northwest corner of the sixth floor when Deputy Boone and myself spotted the rifle about the same time. This rifle was a 7.65 Mauser bolt action equipped with a 418th scope, a thick leather brownish-black sling on it. The rifle was between some boxes near the stairway. The time the rifle was found was 1.22 p.m. Deputy Craig has stated he actually saw the word Mauser stamped on the weapons receiver. And Dallas County District Attorney Henry Wade replied, when asked later that evening about the rifle, It's a Mauser, I believe. However, by late Friday afternoon, the rifle was being identified as a 6.5mm Italian Carcano. While a German Mauser and the Carcano do look somewhat similar, Anyone vaguely familiar with these weapons, Weitzman, Boone, and Craig, they should certainly qualify, can distinguish between them. When asked by the commission to identify the Carcano, Boone would only say, it looks like the same rifle. I have no way of being positive. Weitzman, who managed a sporting goods store and was considered an expert on rifles, had identified the gun as a Mauser. He testified to the Warren Commission only by affidavit and was not asked to identify the Carcano as the gun he held in the depository. Author Sylvia Meager noted, The failure to obtain such corroboration from Weitzman leaves open the possibility that a substitution of rifles took place, or that a second rifle may have been found at the book depository, but kept secret. Lieutenant Day and another Dallas policeman would also write contemporary descriptions of the rifle yet neither of these documents was included with the Warren Commission materials. 
Curry said anyone wanting to substitute one suspected murder weapon for another could have gotten away with it at the time, because no special precautions were taken to isolate the weapon as historic evidence. Another note of interest is that Kennedy's death certificate, the Warren Commission, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and the Journal of American Medical Association all claimed Kennedy was killed by bullets from a high-powered or high-velocity rifle. The problem? Well, the Warren Commission states that the Carcano only reaches a velocity of less than 1,779 feet per second, while a high-velocity rifle exceeds that of 2,000 feet per second. Based on this discrepancy, the Oswald rifle could not be the death weapon. So far, we have conflicting descriptions of the weapon, and an often ignored admission by the Warren Commission that the alleged murder weapon doesn't match the death certificate. Supporting evidence that the Carcano was not the assassination weapon came from Ronald Simmons, chief of the Infantry Weapons Evaluation Branch at the Army's Ballistics Research Laboratory. He was in charge of the team that evaluated the rifle. During testimony to the Warren Commission, Simmons was asked if his team had experienced any difficulties sighting the rifle. He replied, Well, they could not sight the weapon in using the telescope, and no attempt was made to sight it in using the iron sight. We did adjust the telescope sight by the addition of two shims, one which tended to adjust the azimuth, and one which adjusted the elevation. A Warren Commission attorney would clarify, For the record, Mr. Chairman, these shims were given to me by the FBI, who told me that they removed them from the weapon after they had been placed there by Mr. Simmons' laboratory. This essentially was the attorney admitting that the Oswald rifle needed three metal shims placed under the telescopic site before the Army laboratory could even test its accuracy. And this evidence was known to both the FBI and the Warren Commission, but never adequately relayed to the media or the public. Another key question was whether it was possible to fire the rifle accurately within the minimum time frame of 5.6 seconds established by the Zapruder film. As it turns out, tests conducted by both the FBI and the U.S. Army failed to confirm that such a feat was possible, or, if it was possible, that it actually happened on November 22, 1963, in Dallas. Adding to the absurdity, was the documented fact that Oswald struggled to achieve marksmanship standards while in the Marines. The experts also indicated that the telescopic sight was adjusted for a left-handed shooter, yet both Oswald's wife and his brother told the commission Oswald was right-handed. Point after point leads the objective observer to reasonably conclude that things are not going very well in this investigation. Items appear and disappear. Local law authorities contradict each other, and the facts as we know them have become malleable. To pin this crime on Oswald, it seems as if the investigators and eventually the Warren Commission have shifted the goalposts. I want to add two other notes of interest regarding the rifle, without going into too much depth. The Warren Commission stated authoritatively, The number C2766 is the serial number. This rifle is the only one of its type bearing that serial number. Yet, we know this to be false. An FBI report dated April 30, 1964, 
and signed by J. Edgar Hoover stated, The Carcano rifle was manufactured in Italy from 1891 until 1941. However, in the 1930s, Mussolini ordered all arms factories to manufacture the Carcano rifle. Since many concerns were manufacturing the same weapon, the same serial number appears on weapons manufactured by more than one concern. Some bear a letter prefix, and some do not. And lastly, despite two massive federal investigations, not one bit of evidence has been brought forward as to where or when Oswald might have purchased ammunition or the ammunition clip for the rifle. Another important piece of evidence in this case involved what is called a paraffin test. This test was performed on Oswald the day of the assassination, and the results presented evidence that he may not have fired a rifle that day. Because the result was favorable to Oswald, it was downplayed and even suppressed by federal authorities. To explain this test, layers of paraffin are applied to a suspect's skin, and the sticky, warm wax opens the pores and then picks up any foreign material that may be present on the skin. When the wax cools, it forms a hard cast that can then be treated with chemicals which turn blue if nitrates are present. The idea is that the skin of someone who had recently fired a weapon will bear traces of nitrates. On the night of November 22nd, Dallas police took a paraffin test of Oswald's hands and his right cheek. The test was positive for the hands, but negative for the cheek. While the presence of nitrates is not conclusive evidence that a gun was fired, tobacco, urine, cosmetics, matches, soil, and certain drugs can cause a positive reaction, the absence of nitrates, especially on his cheek, is compelling evidence that he had not fired a weapon. Surprisingly, there is a sole piece of hard evidence linking Oswald to the Carcano rifle, a palm print, that was reportedly found on the underside of the gun's barrel when it was disassembled. But don't get too excited. The palm print would never have been admitted as evidence in any courtroom trial because it lacked a chain of custody. According to Lieutenant John Day, he discovered the palm print shortly before turning the rifle over to the FBI at around midnight on November 22, 1963. Yet he mentioned it to no one, and there's no record of his discovery. Day even admitted to the Warren Commission that it was his customary practice to photograph fingerprints in most instances prior to lifting them. This wasn't done. Early on November 23rd, 1963, the rifle was turned over to the FBI laboratory and examined for fingerprints. A report made that day and signed by J. Edgar Hoover reported, no latent prints of value were developed on Oswald's revolver. The cartridge cases, the unfired cartridge, the clip in the rifle, or the inner parts of the rifle. The FBI had no indication of any useful print. Nada. Nothing. Before the Warren Commission, FBI expert Sebastian Latona stated, We had no personal knowledge of any palm print having been developed on the rifle. Evidently, the lifting had been so complete that there was nothing left to show any marking on the gun itself as to the existence of such, even an attempt on the part of anyone to process the rifle. At this point, I have to stop and wonder, was the rifle turned over to the FBI, the same one found in the depository? Something to think about. Oswald would be shot and murdered the morning of November 24 in the basement of the Dallas police station. And that afternoon, 
the rifle was flown back to Dallas. Why would it be flown back? The FBI had promised to return all evidence, but why would you rush the return of the murder weapon? It's probably the single most important piece of evidence at this point. And why would you send it back to Dallas? On Monday, following a competent autopsy, Oswald's body was lying in Miller Funeral Home in Fort Worth when, according to the Fort Worth Press, an FBI team with a camera and a crime lab kit spent a long time in the morgue. Miller Funeral Home director Paul Grudy claimed that the FBI fingerprinted Oswald's corpse and complained, I had a heck of a time getting the black fingerprint ink off of Oswald's hands in time for burial. Oswald had been fingerprinted three times while in Dallas police custody. There has been no legitimate reason for this post-mortem fingerprinting. But in 1978, we finally get an explanation. FBI agent Harrison confirmed to researcher Gary Mack that he, along with Agent Drain, had personally driven the Oswald rifle to the Miller funeral home. Harrison said at the time he understood Drain intended to place Oswald's palm print on the rifle for comparison purposes. This is pure madness, and it makes zero sense. If prints had been lifted from the rifle, like Lieutenant Day claimed, then you wouldn't need to have the rifle presented to do any print comparisons, and you certainly shouldn't be adding any new prints to the weapon. District Attorney Wade was asked about the strongest evidence of Oswald's guilt. He responded, If I had to single out any one thing, it would be the fingerprints found on the rifle and the book cartons, which Oswald used to prop the weapon on. On November 26, the rifle was again sent to Washington. But the incriminating palm print did not arrive at the FBI lab until November 29, three days after all Dallas police evidence had been officially turned over to the Bureau. But by this point, the FBI already had a print. Not surprising since one was just added post-mortem to the weapon. Lieutenant Day continued to maintain that he found a print and failed to mention it, photograph it, or send it to the FBI quickly, because he believed that sufficient traces of the print had been left on the rifle barrel. Day told Henry Hurt that he specifically pointed out the print to Agent Drain when he gave him the rifle. However, Drain denied this. According to Hurt, Drain told him, I just don't believe there was ever a print. All I can figure is that it was some sort of cushion, because they were getting a lot of heat by Sunday night. You could take the print off Oswald's arrest card and put it on the rifle. Something like that happened. While a palm print would have been amazing evidence, even the Warren Commission found this piece hard to believe. An internal FBI memorandum that was made public only in 1978 disclosed that on August 28, 1964, Warren Commission General Counsel Lee Rankin advised because of the circumstances that now exist, there was a serious question in the minds of the commission as to whether or not the palm impression that had been obtained from the Dallas Police Department is a legitimate latent palm impression removed from the rifle barrel or whether it was obtained from some other source and that for this reason this matter needs to be resolved. The FBI attempted to have Lieutenant Day certify a statement about his actions with the palm print, but Day declined to sign it and one FBI fingerprint expert declined to answer researchers who merely asked if he could determine whether a fingerprint came from living or dead flesh. Like so much of the hard evidence in this case, the closer one looks, the softer it becomes. 
With the evidence and the narrative collapsing, investigators and the Warren Commission needed a reason to go all in on the lone gunman theory. And they found their hero, Commission Exhibit 399, a.k.a. the Magic Bullet. In a previous episode, we went over JFK's autopsy and all of its inconsistencies. To explain Kennedy's wounds and give credence to the lone assassin theory, the Commission needed something anything to support their conclusions. After Kennedy had passed and his body was being shipped to Bethesda, Governor Connolly was in surgery. It was during this time that the hospital's senior engineer, Daryl Tomlinson, was asked to manually operate an elevator that connected the ground floor emergency room to the second floor operating rooms. It was Tomlinson who found then intact bullet, presumably from the stretchers carrying Governor Connolly. And this is the bullet which became the key exhibit of the Warren Commission. The Commission contended that this bullet fired from 60 feet above ground level struck Kennedy in the back at the level of the third thoracic vertebrae at a downward angle. Without hitting any bone, it coursed upwards to exit from his Adam's apple, then turned downward again to strike Connolly near his right armpit, shattering his fifth rib, It then exited near Connolly's right nipple and somehow struck and shattered his right wrist before turning left and lodging in his left thigh. This wild theory rests on the idea that a single bullet, acting in the manner that I just described, caused seven wounds to two men, emerged in a pristine condition, and was found on a stretcher in Parkland Hospital. In an attempt to explain away the unscathed condition of this bullet, Members of the Forensic Pathology Panel of the House Select Committee on Assassinations urged that other bullets had done similar damage and remained in pristine condition. However, one member of the panel, Dr. Cyril Wecht, challenged the group to produce even one single bullet that had broken two human bones and remained unchanged. As expected, the Forensic Panel declined, and Dr. Wecht concluded, It is clear to me that their reluctance was based upon their knowledge that such studies would further destroy the single-bullet theory. Because no one is convinced of this magic bullet theory, the emission spectrography tests that were conducted assume more importance. These spectrographic tests are a scientific means of determining whether the various bits of bullet metal that were taken from both Kennedy and Connolly came from the same bullet. These tests could have provided what is missing from all Kennedy assassination investigations, clear, irrefutable proof that metal found in the victims could be traced to the magic bullet. The test failed to do this, and to make matters worse, the handling of this evidence raised a great deal of suspicion toward federal authorities. Concerning the test, the Warren Commission chose not to ask one single question of the spectrographic expert who conducted the tests. They were content to simply report that several bullet fragments were similar in metallic composition, which proved nothing. In the years following the assassination, researcher Harold Weisberg sought unsuccessfully to obtain the spectrographic test results from the U.S. government. Government attorneys argued that revealing the results was not in the national interest, although they would not explain why. Then, in 1973, A batch of Warren Commission documents were released to the public, and it contained letters from FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. In these, 
Hoover reported that composition of the fragments was similar and that no significant differences were found. But the fact that differences, no matter how significant, were found means they were not from the same source. Obviously, if the test proved conclusively that the fragments and Commission Exhibit 399 all came from the same ammunition, the case against Oswald would have been strengthened considerably. In fact, the opposite occurred, and by concealing the test results, the Commission raised further suspicion about the government's handling of the case. Unreported in the Commission's report, or volumes, was an account of even further scientific testing, this time using neutron activation analysis, a sophisticated method of determining differences in the composition by bombarding the test object with radiation. In referring to this test in a letter made public in 1973, Hoover wrote, While minor variations in composition were found by this method, these were not considered to be sufficient to permit positively differentiating among the larger bullet fragments and thus positively determining from which of the larger bullet fragments any given small fragment may have come. This wording is disingenuous and deceptive, since any difference in composition is evidence that the fragments are not from the same ammunition. This isn't the end of the bullet fragment story, and just like the rifle, we will revisit this in a later episode. The first conclusion I can make from reviewing this evidence is that the Dallas police are wholly incompetent. To make things worse, the FBI took over the evidence without a proper chain of custody, and then evidence either disappeared or new evidence magically appeared. What criminal wouldn't like to gain complete, secret, and unsupervised control over all the evidence in his case for two full days? Wouldn't the verdict in his criminal trial be a swift not guilty if he had the opportunity to doctor the evidence? Another way to look at this? To quickly close their case, what agency wouldn't like to gain complete, secret, and unsupervised control over all the evidence in their case for two full days? Wouldn't the verdict in their criminal trial be a swift guilty if the agency had the opportunity to doctor the evidence? Although the proof of the disappearance and reappearance of the JFK evidence has been lying right in front of researchers since the fateful weekend, no one seems to have perceived the significance of the matter. With the FBI in charge of the evidence and the investigation, they essentially gained control over the flow of information, and in essence, the federal government gained control over the narrative. And who would end up writing the narrative? The Warren Commission. Next time on Conspiracy, we look into the formation of the Warren Commission and try to unravel the Commission's true motives to tell the truth or construct a believable story.